Thanks for joining us, Steve Barsh from Dream Adventures on another episode and show of Dream It Live. Today we're joined by Michael B. Tannenbaum Hello. from Brex. And uh, we're gonna be talking with Michael today about how Brex has raised nearly $600 million in the last three years, lessons learned from Brex, SoFi, all the different organizations you've uh, been involved with. Let's get started. Michael, welcome. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Can you uh, first give us a little bit of background on yourself? Who are you? What have you done? What, where have you been? Sure. So, uh, well, I'm originally from Boston. Okay. And what area in Boston? I'm from a town called Wellesley. Okay. Yeah. And I, I actually took some classes in high school at Wellesley College, which is unusual because it's an all-girls college. Right. Um, that, that, okay. We can get that, into that, that but okay. it's probably not worth it. Okay. Um, we'll leave that one alone. Uh, but then I started my career in Wall Street, and then I worked in a private equity company in California, and then I went to a company called SoFi that you referenced, right. started there pretty um, junior and kind of worked my way up through the finance department uh, to become to take over the finance department, then uh, uh, the mortgage business there, and then I became chief revenue officer. Mm -hmm. Relatively young, I was 29. Wow. And then I uh, joined Brex uh, super early, was uh, before we, we were called something different and we were in a, um, Wait, what, what were you, what did we you were called Veyond, V-E-Y-O-N-D. All right. It's kind of hard to pronounce right. and spell, which is one of the problems. Right. And it also sounds like meat in French. Okay. So, um, and I joined the company really as the first, you could say American employee. It was, mm -hmm. um, two Brazilian founders and another, um, Brazilian, uh, woman and right. me. How's and your Portuguese? So I learned a lot, I've learned a lot of Portuguese, but okay. not a lot of it's appropriate. Got it. But I like <laughs> Portuguese. Uh, my favorite cool language. My favorite phrase in Portuguese, which is safe for work, is "tamo junto," which means we are together. Okay. All right. Nice phrase. That's nice. Yeah. So wait, so you did SoFi, Brex, and then what's your role at Brex today? Like, so how the, long have you been here? I'm the CFO. I've been here for uh, about two and a half years, which is about the company's actually only been launched for 18 months. Right. So. Um, I've been here, you know, I threw, through the launch, I ran the launch. Mm -hmm. I was the kind of the guy running it. Right. Um, and today as CFO, I manage, uh, finance mm -hmm. operations, um, and which includes credit and capital markets and things that you associate with. So, finance. so, and you've done finance at SoFi, you're doing finance here, you're CFO here. I'm just curious, wh where did you go to school? And what's your, what's your degree in? But by the way, I'm uh, a big fan. I say to our kids all the time. You know, what you learn in school is how to learn. And once you learn how to learn, you can learn anything. Yeah. So I'm curious, what did you? So I went to Columbia in New York City. Um, Wait, you did not go to Barnard? Because you know, No, the, I, the I, I stopped the all-girls school. <laughs> okay, got it. Um, I actually got, received a complaint from, I was too participatory in class. I didn't kind of, I wasn't mature enough to know that even if I knew the answer at the time, got given it. I was the only boy, maybe it was best to shut up. Got it. So, so you went to Columbia. I got a call from that professor. Right. Um, but yes, I went to Columbia and I studied economics and urban studies, which mm -hmm. is like city growth and planning, which right. has not too much to do with what I do today. Right. Okay. Well, it's fine. It's um, cool. So, so you're at Brex today. For those that are watching. So far, unless I'm terminated by the end of this. No, 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 no. This will be good. This will yeah. be good. Um, so you're Brex today. What, for those people that are watching, what's Brex? What do you guys do? What's the story? Where did sure. it start? Yeah, so we're a payments company. Um, we build financial services for uh, growing companies. Mm -hmm. And so what that means is, at least initially, was a we started with a corporate credit card that focused on early stage startups, mm -hmm. which we were ourselves. So it was kind of interesting building a product for ourselves. Oh, that's cool. Um, and then eat your own dog food. Yes, exactly. And then okay. we expanded um, to other 
uh, fast-growing companies like life sciences mm -hmm. and e-commerce businesses. And then most recently, we added a product called Brex Cash, mm -hmm. which is a corporate um, cash management account, uh, replaces a bank account, and allows you to make payments not just through a credit card, but also through ACH, wire, mm -hmm. um, bill pay, check. Right. Okay. So, but so, what makes you guys unique and different? And I'll let let me give you the the thought there. Right. So, I'm I live in Philly full time. I've done a lot of startups, a lot of LLCs and small companies. You know, you go to TD Bank and they're like, sure, Steve, here, sign here. And, you know, you can get a credit card that, you know, $5,000 line of credit. Oh, right. That's terrific. What, what makes you guys different? Yeah. So I think what's different is that across the dynamics of underwriting, payment terms, rewards, um, and product experience, mm -hmm. what we do is specifically tailored to the customers that we serve. So and off that target, that focus is? Right. And that focus is, for example, in the tech space. We offer, we underwrite based on bank account mm -hmm. rather than underwrite based on the consumer. Mm -hmm. And so because of that, because traditionally in banking, there's a problem of how do you underwrite an early stage company right. that doesn't have any history. Right. And no, so what right. we do is we use the bank account balance and history, mm -hmm. which every company that works with us has, right. and then we're able to underwrite um, which is really beneficial rather than have to personally guarantee the card right. or um, underwrite and give, as you referenced, a consumer-like limit. We give a business-like limit because we see all the cash. Because you're looking at the balance sheet, right? Yeah. Like, okay. And then on top of that, we built expense management features mm -hmm. um, like receipt capture and integrations with accounting software, and we built a rewards program all of which are, are very highly customized to this tech vertical or e-commerce vertical. And so it's vertical specific uh, features mm -hmm. and products right. that add a lot of value and allow us to compete with, say, TD, who has a branch on every corner. Got it. Got it. So, At least around here. So I'll tell you a couple things. By the way, we're a customer. Dream Adventures has a breakfast Thank cart. You. We've had it. I remember when I read about you guys launching out of YC and stuff. I was like, this is awesome. This is a great idea. I left it on our controller's desk. I was like, you know, you might want to take a look into this. And I said this to Brittany and you know, Darren at Dream It. And a couple of weeks later, I noticed a black card sitting on her desk. Oh, like, nice. She's like, oh, this is awesome. This yeah. is terrific. There's an or it's now orange. It's now orange. Yeah. Okay. So, so the way I think of it too, and because we have a bunch of startups, like it's a perk for Dream It. A lot of accelerators like Dream It, YC, Mass Challenge, a lot of tech stars probably has it too. That's kind of when I think about it, right? It's that yeah. startup or early stage life sciences, biotech, whatever it may be. But if you're that growing startup, that's kind of your sweet spot? Yeah, I mean, that's okay. definitely our sweet spot. I think we're hitting on an interesting point because uh, when we were launching, I actually ran our marketing. Mm -hmm. And one of the biggest problems we had was what is the moment in time in the life cycle of a startup where you need a corporate credit card? It's actually not that clear, right? right? You can, there's, it's, not, it's not clear, but what is super clear is when do you need a bank account, mm -hmm. which is before you start anything. And so okay. that's, that's why we did Brex Cash. Right. So with Brex Cash, that first wire into your VC uh, from your from VC your is actually into the Brex Cash account, Got and it. then it comes directly with the card. So okay. that's really powerful. And Brex Cash is like one of the high yield savings kind of thing, but targeted at corporate. That's right. right? Okay. That's right. Similar. Okay. Pays a similar rate to back to my TD example. Uh, just just it, kidding. Yeah. <laughs> no, so I think it, I believe Brex Cash is among the highest rates in the market, yeah. if not the highest. Yeah. So. I, yeah. It's awesome. It's awesome. Okay. So you've been here about two and a half years. 
SoFi before that. So for the rest of this episode, the thing I want to do, let's talk a little bit about SoFi. We'll focus most of the time on Brex. Sure. I want to talk a lot about lessons learned. I think there's we get a lot of founders and entrepreneurs from around the world watch this. I'd love to hear from, you know, you've, you've been involved with two unicorns now. You've raised a lot of funding. I want yeah. to talk about lessons learned. I want to talk about if you could, you know, rewind the clock, what would you have told your younger self? You're not that old, but would you, you sure. were definitely younger. So um, let's get into that. So first of all- Age so, is relative because okay. our founders are 23. Okay, there you go. Okay, there you go. Very cool. So let's first SoFi. What's SoFi? Just real quick so we can talk about that. So SoFi is an online lender that started in the student loan refinancing space mm -hmm. and then built a suite of financial services target to, targeted towards early career uh, professionals. And so okay. mortgage, personal loan, credit mm -hmm. card, that kind of thing. But all consumer, very millennial focused, uh, very big brand. Okay. So I think SoFi's done a great job building a brand. Yeah. So social finance, right? Is yeah, social finance. It was actually a .org when I started, which wow. freaked me out a bit. But yes. <laughs> that could freak you out. Yeah, it's tough to go pitch a VC firm. Like, no, 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 we're not social capital. Yeah, right, exactly. .org. Michael at you know, SoFi.org. Yeah. Exactly. So, um, so you went through that. How long were you there? What was the growth like? What was the fundraising trajectory at SoFi? So I got there and we had raised, I think we were about Series C. Okay. And when I got there, I was about employee number 75. Huh. Um, and then quickly, within six months, I was working with the CEO to lead our unicorn round when we became a unicorn there. Right. And that was a very perfect, that was a very exciting round. Um, we did, you know, that was the first round we had real professional, or not professional, we had sort of more name brand investors, mm -hmm. um, or, or more well-known outside of VC in Silicon Valley. And mm -hmm. then after that, I actually did a SoftBank round which was a billion dollars of capital raise. It was the largest, it probably still is the largest fintech round, maybe wow. in the US. Uh, a um, billion raise, not billion raised, not Actually billion raised, yeah. So Got big, it. I mean, we were a, a lender, mm -hmm. so it was more balance sheet than 10 mm -hmm. seven. So that was a very exciting at the time. It was pre-vision fund, and I was, um, so that was sort of my two big rounds that I worked on there. By the way, I'm trying to do the math in my head. If Brex Cash existed back then, and I had it at a 1.6% savings rate on a billion dollars, Oh my God. Yeah, you'd be pretty good. <laughs> that kicks off some interesting. Oh, it anyway, definitely does. Okay. So raised a billion. So what when you left, you were there. So what was the total raise and what was the valuation, you know, term So we raised um, at so we probably raised basically at a two and a two and a half ish pre and okay. raised a billion on that. So, so we gave away plus. almost three a third of Did the you company. Give away? Sold. We sold yeah. almost a third of the company, <laughs> however you want to yeah, phrase that's it. Fine. That's fine. That's fine. Okay, cool. Um, and then you worked with the CEO on fundraising, all of that, right? I did. CFO. Yeah. So it, I was not the CFO. I was right. the VP of finance, but I was sort of, and actually we have that same structure here. Mm -hmm. I myself, until the end of a fundraise, don't typically work with our CEO as much. Right. Um, I don't spend a ton of time fundraising in the beginning. Okay. I let the CEO sell. Out there the, pitching. Yeah, pitch right. and sort of sell the dream. All right. And then I kind of come in and be more of the tough guy role when it comes time to actually close. Got it. Got it. Okay, we're going to, let's come back to that. So let's, Brax. So been here for two and a half years. Your employee number, what's your best? I'm technically number one. Okay, number one. Because the person that was first hired was from Brazil and Visa had not cleared yet, it was still on a student visa, so wasn't able to be on the payroll yet. Wow, wow, that's very cool. The It's it's funny, I have a good friend, um, David at, at Google, and he has a, probably a similar email address to you. It's, the, it's david at google.com, yeah. right? So I'm sure Michael at Brex. Michael at Brex.com. You know, it's sure. good when you're the first name, it's, it's always a good yeah. sign. So you're employee number one. How many people, so let's just talk about growth. 
Yeah. And again, we'll get into fundraising, but fundraising fuels growth. So when you got here, I, I know how many people there were, like, you know, a, a handful. Four, yeah. Four. So it's two and a half years later. How many people are you guys today? We're about 400. 400. Okay. That's a, that's a, a big It's a big, big jump. Totally. Um, are they all, we're, we're in New York today. Where is everybody? So we've got four offices. One is here. You know, our headquarters is in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Um, that's where I started. I recently moved here. Right. Um, and then we also are in Vancouver and Salt Lake City. Cool. Salt Lake City. I bet yeah. you a lot of people want to go there. Sundance Film Festival is going yeah, on in Park City. Is, right now, everybody's like suddenly yeah. expense reports. To- I was there yesterday, although I did not make it to Sundance. I'm sorry. Next time you're out there, yeah. um, we know a lot about Park City and Deer Valley. Take me up on it. I'd love to host you. Anyway, so you're 400 people today. What do you, so we're going to get into fundraising, but again, it fuels growth. So you're 400 people today. If you look out a year from now, 18 months from now, how many people do you think are going to be here? Yeah, I mean, I'm always hesitant to measure like growth and success in terms of headcount when people say like, okay. oh, wow, you have 400 people. It's like all we do is pay them, right? right. Hiring a bunch of people doesn't mean they're successful or right. doing what you want. So I, I try not to measure it in headcount, right. but I would say that I would probably expect us to be maybe somewhere 700, 750 in a year. Okay. Um, so it's, I would say slowing down a bit right. just as... I think Brex has done a great job of hiring in advance. Mm-hmm. So we've always had things like we had a sales team before we needed it. We we do a lot of we've always planned on being a big company mm-hmm. and operated in the sense that we invest in things, systems, people, processes early even before it's necessary. Okay, so if you're going to grow nearly 100%, nearly double, just could you give us an idea? Again, it's important, and it's going to back into the financials if people are watching, like, why is he getting into all this? I want to hear about raising, but you raise around a lot of different things. What are the big buckets of people? Are they customer service? Are they sales? Are they development? Like, what are yeah, the big, big buckets? Yeah, I mean, so, like, broadly, you know, half the company you could call it would be EPD, engineering, product, and design, mm-hmm. and then go-to-market function, would right. be probably another 30%, right. which would be you know, sales, marketing, customer service, and business development. And then the last would be sort of finance, ops, HR. Got it. Okay. Um, which some people call GNA, although I do not like that term. No. <laughs> yeah, SGNA or GNA. Got it. Okay, so. Um, I don't like know, to be known as, you know, as your PL line item. Got it. Sure. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, you know, you open yourself up to a question that you said, I don't want to measure myself. I don't think we should measure ourselves yeah. on the number of people that work here. Correct. So, what are the KPIs? Like, what do you, and you don't have yeah. to get into detail. No, sure. I mean, detail, I, but what's important? I think to that to, you know, definitely, obviously, you know, top line super important. So, mm-hmm. just revenue. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for some people, users as is, is sort of or, or customers right? customers for us it would be kind of volume mm-hmm. and then revenue is a derivative of that mm-hmm. like payment volume just number dollars of of uh, transactions going through the card um, and dollars of um, cash invested in Brex cash right um, those would be kind of and then I is, think is, is Brex cash always still in beta I know I yes it's still in beta still in beta okay All right. um, beta will be will be ending beta later this um, this season right and i think that we will and then so uh, and then as you get more mature you know some sort of profitability at a minimum unit economic base metrics are important as well and we're going to come to that yeah no absolutely important so a lot of growth behind you a lot of growth in front of you um how much have you raised to fuel that growth? Could you break it down a little bit? Maybe some rounds, numbers, and yeah, valuation. Yeah, sure. We've raised we'll about three hundred and a little over three hundred and fifteen million dollars of equity. Okay. Um, and at this point, another three hundred ish million dollars of debt. Okay. Um, and so Brex's debt is different than 
is applicable for all all companies, right? Because we have about because we're a lender. Yep. Even though it's very short term, mm -hmm. we accumulate assets on our balance sheet that then we can leverage. Got it. And so we, it's actually more natural for us to have debt. So you're not talking when you talk about debt, and we're gonna get into this later because I think there's a lot of entrepreneurs and startups we talk to at Dreamit. You know, we operate you know that seed Series A, and they don't understand venture debt. Right. And they don't understand the difference between debt and equity. There's that side of it, but are you talking more about line of credit type debt? Yeah. At LLC, not like venture debt. Or that's right. Both. I mean, so we have done venture debt here as well. Yeah. Which um, I want to get into. Sure. I think a lot of people don't understand. Yeah. I mean, I think in. the main thing to understand with with debt versus equity is that the sale is different mm -hmm. because in equity, it's all about the upside. Right. And in debt, it's the opposite. The mm -hmm. best you can get in debt is paid back. Right. Maybe there's some sort of warrants or convertible mm -hmm. thing that has a little bit of a sweetener, as mm -hmm. they say. Mm -hmm. But the reality of debt is all you can do is get paid back. So people aren't so much. So in, for example, in our debt rounds, it will be me leading rather than the CEO because it's not about, I mean, there's a little bit of they want the vision. Maybe right. the company wants to know that there'll be an IPO someday so they can get their bankers paid, et cetera. Mm. But it's really about, am I going to get paid back? When you, It's interesting. When you're looking at that type of debt, are you actually thinking about way down you know, at an IPO? Like, who do you want to partner with for the debt? Because eventually, or they're trying to yeah, I mean, I think swoon you that's, for the debt? That is, depending on who's giving you the debt. If you're right. doing a Wall Street round, right. then definitely. So right. for us, in our case, you know, we have debt from both Barclays and Credit Suisse. And mm -hmm. I... I'm confident that the future fees on capital markets transactions from Brex are relevant in their decision about whether or not to pursue. Got it. Okay. Interesting. Because, Interesting. and if you look, like uh, as companies start to go public, it's a, a very common step that you'll see is they do a credit facility right. and sort of pick their bankers and ask people to lend to them. Right. So, okay. So, so you've raised a little over 600 million between debt and equity or their line of credit, however you want to phrase that. Um, what, what's your valuation? Can you say this? I know, I know it's no, yeah, public. It's, right? it's public. It's right. 2.6 billion. 2.6. Which sounds good. I mean, yeah, that's no, a big number. It is a, it's a, it's a big number. Can you talk about, you said as part of your fundraising experience, you, you talked and really nicely, like, Hey, look, the CEO is out there selling the vision or you have co-CEOs, right? And then you, on the debt side, it's really more you cause it's a, it's strongly a finance function, but Maybe on the equity side, could you talk a little bit about how have you worked with the co-CEOs on fundraising? How does that yeah, work? Yeah, and so I wouldn't be so prescriptive, prescriptive to say that everybody should do our model. Yeah. I think it has to do with who your CEO is and who your CFO is. Uh -huh. But I think that in the beginning, people, particularly in venture, they're investing in the, the primary question they're asking is, can this be really big? Yeah. And can you know is this worth... Because in order for the venture economics to work, they need some unicorns. Yeah, absolutely. And so that's where somebody who is very growth-oriented, very visionary is going to do best. Got it. Typically, that is the CEO. Right. It may not be in some companies, and then it is incumbent upon the CFO to either be that person or find that person who can help do it. So but when you're, so you have two co-founders, right? two co-CEOs, Brazilian. Do. Um, I would assume if they're pitching anyone that, by the way, speaks Portuguese, they get to lead all of those discussions. Yes, right? that's right. <laughs> Portuguese is much better. Yes. But, but when you're in the room, like, are you in there and in some of those early pitches or when are you getting involved? Yeah, and, I and, mean, yeah. My, my thought on fundraising is that it's like any relationship. Mm -hmm. And so you don't want to, typically, the best relationships don't start where you need something right away. Right. So if a lot of the work is done by the CEO in advance, mm -hmm who has met with investors, talked to them about what we're doing before you're raising money. So then when you come, it's not like, hi, how are you? I'd like money now. 
Right. And so that's a bit transactional. And so I think in the case for my role, I would not be there in the beginning. Mm -hmm. And this is something that we talked about before we went on air. But, right. you know, my my opinion is that good companies don't spend that much time fundraising. You've got to be running the business. So right. my fundraising always irks me in some ways because I just want to get back to right. doing what I do. And it's right. sort of a distraction. It is. We'll and so we try to... Min and it, it can also be quite a distraction internally as employees, you know, what's hear about on, it, what's right. going on. What's our valuation? Right, what exactly, my stock exactly. Yeah. So I think that one of the things we try to do is have a lot of that done by the CEO. And then when it's real, it's time for me to come in. And Got then it. Got it. So when you, again, let's think back SoFi, Breck. SoFi, you know, you closed a billion dollars in financing at SoFi, not valuation, cash in. Mm -hmm. Here you've done 600 million. When you guys walk out, or when your co-CEOs walk out and you're on Sand Hill Road or you're in New York, yep. do you just walk out and for you, um, just the check clears the bank, wire transfer comes in, it's almost like an ATM machine? Or, you know, the, yeah. the, the, the question behind my question is, we talk to entrepreneurs and startups all the time that are going through Dream It, like, look, it's a roller coaster. Right. And it looks all great in the headlines, and there's this great TechCrunch headline, everybody's like, God, everybody's got it so easy. For you guys, is it just like, there's no questions. People just write a check, or or are there ups and downs that you can talk no, about? No, I mean, there's definitely ups and downs. I mean, I think there's, you know, the best breakout unicorns always have that phase mm -hmm. where it does sort of feel ATM like. Yeah, and I've definitely been at both companies through rounds where you're feeling like everybody's wants to play ball, right. and you've got all these term sheets, and you're just deciding, and mm -hmm. it's so exciting, mm -hmm. and you know that's that's going to be the case for good companies sometimes. And then, you know, markets will change. Um, things like this fall happen where mm -hmm. investors get more conservative. Mm -hmm. Actually, winter of 2016 started off super rocky for online lenders at yeah. the time for SoFi. Yeah. Very rough. Yeah. Lending Club had big problems. Yep. I mean, I so that was, I mean, I've definitely gone through ups and downs. Mm -hmm. um, and so I would say that a good, good financial planning is to make sure that you have that buffer because at least in post-global financial crisis, we haven't seen consistent periods mm -hmm. of long-term disruption. Right. There will be those in the future, but at a minimum, but I mean, what we know that there are going to be some of those minor fluctuations, and it's important that you can always ride those out and not be raising in a time when whatever you're selling is what people don't want. And do you, do you think that's the classic, you know, if people offer you cash, take it, because you never know? I tend to agree with that philosophy, yeah. actually. Like if, I mean, that would be my personal advice. If mm -hmm. someone's there, I would say take it, especially right. until you are at a, if you're not dependent on venture money because right. you're now self-sustaining, then mm -hmm. no, that's, that's no longer true. Okay. But otherwise, yes. So so I wanted to ask it later, but it, the timing seems really good for now. You said, you know, the things come in waves in 2016. You've raised money from SoftBank. Do you think what happened with WeWork and SoftBank and that kind of debacle and, and what's going on with that, do you think that's going to temper what's happening for unicorns and people doing really large rounds? Yeah, I mean, I thought, so it, it's, it definitely had a tempering effect in the fall. You could mm -hmm. feel a chilling. Mm -hmm. I think that two weeks ago mm -hmm. when Visa bought Plaid, especially in the fintech space. And can you remind people how big was that transaction? That was a 5.2 billion. Right. With um, a B. With right. a B. Yeah. <laughs> so because Visa is such a well-respected company and mm -hmm. so well-known mm -hmm. and you know not known to be a fool, yeah. them paying $5 billion for a kind of high-flying fintech company at a premium mm -hmm. from their last round, I think feels really good right. to the market. So mm -hmm. I think that my opinion on the SoftBank sort of fallout that you saw was actually 
much more about the asset management industry mm -hmm. and just the idea that when you raise such a big fund like Vision Fund, right. you have to put that money to work, Absolutely. which sort of inf by its nature inflates valuation. Mm -hmm. And then it also means that because you're putting so much money to work, you have to basically band together six other VCs to match that. It made people who took money from SoftBank, it made it harder to get money from anyone besides SoftBank. And so I think it's right. sort of, it, it wasn't really, it was almost just the, it was set up to be this way because of how big the fund was relative to other fund sizes. Okay, so I wanna go back. Um, so thank you for your comments on that. I wanted to go back, we were talking a little bit of, uh, and some of your experiences about raising venture capital and equity versus venture debt. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts based on your experiences, two big companies, like when, when should a startup be thinking, no, go for venture debt? And again, it's yeah. different than, we have dreaming companies that do all kinds of financings and you know large right. lines of credit. It's more on the venture debt side, I think is interesting, because I think a lot of people don't understand it. Yeah, I think venture debt is best used to plug uh, short-term cash needs in mm -hmm. advance of milestones that will have big fundraising impacts. So for example, if you're waiting for a public launch of something mm -hmm. and you need a little bit more money to get there, or mm -hmm. maybe even a lot more money to get there, but you know that your valuation is gonna be meaningfully different once you get there, mm -hmm. venture debt is a good way to minimize dilution and help you get to where you need to go. Um, so that's the way that I would typically use it most. The other way is that sometimes when you're raising a round and you need a certain amount of proceeds, right at that time as you're marking up your valuation, mm -hmm. hopefully, yeah. is a good time to raise venture debt because you have an, a new money, fresh money coming in at that value, wow. which gets a lender more comfortable. So there's a couple things you said though, let's drill a little deeper and I wanna unpack. The way you just described venture debt, you made it sound like a bridge round. Right. Oh, I need a little more time, a little more it runway. It can be. That's one of the ways. Right. Because again, be like we see Dreamic, not Dreamic companies. I mean, sometimes, but you see companies. Well, I raised my Series A, but I'm doing a bridge round of the Series B. And by the way, like we say to people all the time, great. It's a bridge to where? Is it a bridge, or are you walking off the end of a dock into the right. water? It's right. It's got to be a bridge to somewhere. Right. So. so Okay. I'm sorry. No, so I think it should be like you clearly have this milestone mm -hmm. that is go that you have confidence, right? Because debt is about confidence to be paid back. That right. You have visibility into something that is going to materially change the mm -hmm. status quo. Right. And you need money to get there and you don't necessarily want to raise equity in advance of that. Mm -hmm. Typically, venture debt comes with covenants mm -hmm. always yep, absolutely. and so venture debt is not never going to be your last dollar because mm -hmm. they'll make sure they're paid back before absolutely. they are they're, so they're it's not tough. it's right. not for last dollar it's for i'm not quite ready to raise i want a little more cushion type thing or it's for i'm raising a big new round and maybe my lead investor is there at a good value mm -hmm. but they're not for whatever reason they're not putting in as much as i'd like right. to raise and maybe venture debt is a nice way to bridge that and add more gross proceeds to the round without adding dilution and or without having to get another counterparty. Yeah, and that, that to me is the biggest thing I always think about, it's the dilution, right? If you can get debt and not sell pieces of the company, you're not selling 20% of your company for whatever valuation, right. that's great. I mean, it's better to hold on if you can get the cash that you need, so. Yeah, anyway. and it's a little bit like personal finance, right? Mm -hmm. There's gonna be people, like I talk to people all the time because I'm a CFO, people always ask me for personal financial advice and uh -huh. you're not really supposed to give it, but right. sometimes I, do and 
people will, you know, there's some people who are like me and get high, have, you know, mortgages. Mm -hmm. They only do interest only because they think blah, blah, blah. Right. And then there's people who are like, no, I'm a 30-year fixed kind of guy. Right. right. And right. I'm not a 30-year fixed guy. You can probably just right. tell talking to me. Yeah, yeah, But that doesn't mean that it's not a right product for some people. So it's yeah. a little bit about the founder and the CFO and the management team's risk tolerance as right. well and how much they want to lever the company. Okay. I think one of the things, an interesting thing you probably didn't see it. earlier this week, I did a little live LinkedIn live thing. And what I was talking about was to so many founders, stop raising and start selling. We right. see so many entrepreneurs, all they're doing is raising, raising, raising. I was like, screw that. You should be out, you're not, if you spent half the time that you spend talking to investors, actually talking to customers, you right. have to raise less and they just don't have enough traction to get to the milestones. My point with that, so it's kind of interesting, this is the opposite from that to you know a unicorn and, and hundreds of millions that you're raising. But I wanna talk about, and I think it's really important for entrepreneurs to understand, that when you're raising rounds like this, there are downsides to it. Right, you're eliminating optionality. You're eliminating possibilities. What are the? If you can talk about it, yeah. I think I think people don't talk about this, so we should. What are the downsides when you're raising like this? Yeah, I mean, so the first most obvious one is just management time and distraction. Sure. Absolutely. So I think that's one of the reasons why you want to raise a certain amount to to get to where you want to be in mm -hmm. a certain. Uh, future milestone mm -hmm. rather than always be raising because it's just going to distract you. Right. And actually, investors will tire of you as well. Right. Um, I think number two would be that there's this implicit sense among people that work within technology that private valuations need to go up every round. Right. And so as you raise, you need to be careful about the internal signaling mainly of having a down round, which is quite different than working at even the best performing companies, sure. that even the big tech companies, right. their stocks drop from right. on a quarter, but it doesn't mean that people start leaving, right. right? But I think internally, there's a lot of concern in a privately, um, in a private company, if the if the if the stock price goes down. Okay. The the other thing though that I've seen, and a, a really good friend, I don't know if you know Josh Koppelman from First Round Capital, great VC, really good friend. You know, he has a great way of expressing this. As you raise more money, right, optionality closes down on you. It does. Less options are on the table. He has a great analogy. We, uh, Dustin and I took Amtrak from Philly today mm -hmm. up here to New York City. And, and I, a great analogy I remember that Josh said, I can get from Philadelphia to New York City a couple different ways. I could take SEPTA to Trenton and then take the New Jersey Transit or whatever, mm -hmm. and it's much, much cheaper. It's just a little bit of cash. And there are 20 stops along the way. It'll take a lot longer to get here, and there's 20 stops along the way for me to get off. Or I can take the Excella and I'm going to pay 10 times the price and eat 10 times the cash and I'm going to New York City and I right. there's no exit along the way. And I think one of the things is like when you talked about the big acquisition that happened in FinTech a few weeks ago, right? When you're raising cash like this, like we were talking about, you know, when you're in the beginning and Brax, you haven't raised much, right? There's a thousand companies that could buy you and then you raise a right. hundred million and now there's 500 companies that could right. buy you. And I think, I think that's important for entrepreneurs to understand as you raise more, there's less optionality. Right. And there's always going to be entrepreneurs that just are not interested in selling and don't care. Sure. Okay. But yeah, out, so there's that. There's just a segment uh, of the absolutely. market um, that's not interested. Mm -hmm. But I think if you are interested, which is the majority of the market, mm -hmm. um, I think it's a, it's a pretty important point. And there, especially in fintech where we have been, there's sort of something talked about this fintech trap, mm -hmm. which is once you get over a billion, particularly in financial in, companies, valuation, valuation yeah. because mm -hmm. banks... Um, are more goodwill sensitive in mm -hmm. the sense that when you buy a company for more than the book value, you create goodwill. Sure, absolutely. But for right. banks, the capital rate it impacts capital ratio, right. so they're not as able to pay these huge mm -hmm. prices. 
And so because of that, you sort of trap yourself and you may not be a target for many people, so you have to go public. And then you need to start to think, well, does this company make sense as right. a public company? Because a lot of times niche market, niche vertical stuff, it's kind of a confusing story for the public market and it's not a natural fit for, a, for an IPO. Right. And then those companies sometimes get trapped. Right, got it, got it, interesting, okay. That sort of happened to a lot of online lenders. Yeah, no, right, yeah. Some, some yeah, tough stories along the way. So um, let's go back to Brax, right? Well, we're on Brax. So mm -hmm. you've raised about six or seven rounds, how much? So we've raised four equity rounds and two debt rounds. Okay, so six in total, but okay, four equities, two debt. So again, you know, dream that we operate a lot in seed series A, a lot of series A rounds that we do, three different verticals we work in. Yeah. Um, but what's interesting is I talk to a lot of entrepreneurs and they're like, well, I'm thinking about my valuation. I was like, well, I can tell you what your valuation is. It's it's pretty much a ratio and a math formula. Right. You're selling 20%. So if you tell me you're raising a million, I'm telling you that your pre is four, your post is five. And right. it's programmatic. And they right. don't understand that. And we often tell entrepreneurs when they're early, early stage, give a range. Ah, we're raising one to two million because you're you're, right. you're telling, you're signaling what your valuation should be. Okay. With that said, you're not, you're, you're doing B, C, D rounds, debt right. rounds. How do you figure out valuations? Where, where? You know. Yeah, so I think it has to do with, as you get bigger. And by the way, are you, is it you and the co-CEOs? Here's our valuation, we're doing our D round, or is no. it investors coming back to you? It's more, so what you're doing is you're looking at, you know, as you get bigger, you're, you're raising from different people, sure. right? So you're kind of people that are playing a different game. Mm -hmm. So it's important to understand what game they're playing. And they may be kind of growth stage VC targeting, five to 10x. Mm -hmm. They could be crossover people that are looking for an IPO mm -hmm. and maybe they're targeting three to four, right? And so it could be private equity that just targets basically three. right? And so it depends on kind of where you are and um, what, what the expectations are. And so you can sort of look into the future of your projections, see what you could be worth in a reasonable scenario, mm -hmm haircut it perhaps, look at some scenarios, and then say, okay, well, in order for us to get there, what does my investor need to make Got back, it. and then sort of back into it. And you just value. back into it, you reverse engineer. It. If they need a 3X, what does it need to look like? Right, what does and it need to look like? And will you actually, as a CEO, CFO, will you sit there and go through calculations like that with them? I, um, I think that in a, in a really healthy, robust round, you would not. Right. right, you would. It would be obvious to them that that was the case and you might do your homework, but mm -hmm. I think as soon as you are starting to talk about what your value ought to be to mm -hmm. a counterparty, right. you've lost a little bit of momentum already. Got it. Doesn't mean that it won't happen. It will, it it will inevitably happen. It's happened to me before. Mm -hmm. But I find once you're trying to tell people like how it's going to be versus them deciding, you're right. definitely not as in as strong of a position of power. Same with an M&A. Right? Right, right, if you're right. trying to like justify what the synergies are going to be, mm -hmm. That's usually, it doesn't mean it won't happen, but you're not in as strong a position. So, so I want to talk about, and we see a lot of early stage entrepreneurs obsess about valuation. When you're doing these deals and the deals, you know, you've probably been involved in 10 financing rounds total yeah, in your career in the last six years. You I did raised, a bunch of debt at SoFi also. How, how much total have you raised over that period? I think if you count debt rounds, et yeah. cetera, probably around maybe, as, maybe 4 billion. 4 billion. Wow, that's a lot. You know, when a term sheet comes over the transom, so you mm -hmm. get an email with a PDF attached and here's the term sheet, 
is the only thing you're looking at valuation? Like, what are some of the things everybody gets excited? Your co-CEOs get excited. You're like, right. okay, whoa, 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 guys. <laughs> There's some other things. What are the two yeah, or I mean, three so, things that so, you're looking so at? So governance, particularly for founders, is usually a big deal. So voting, board seat, mm-hmm. um, limitations on the company's ability to raise or um, sell in the future at certain prices, mm-hmm. any kind of what they call structure, so things like ratchets yep. or things where anti-dilution, there's anti-dilution, yeah. all of those sort of mm-hmm. governance um, is important. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I would also say that the person itself, the, yep. the, who the person is and whether you like him or her mm-hmm. uh, is relevant. Okay. Um, and I think that... The classic, you know, you're getting married for a while. Right. Yeah. You're, and that. And then also, um, in, at least in competitive fundraising, what that firm or fund can do for you. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and it doesn't always have to be what actions, but what messaging does it send to the market, right, from right. a strategic, for example, right. you know, if we had raised an investment from somebody like American Express, Mm -hmm. which we have not, of course. But that would send a very different message than us raising from, you know, say somebody like Facebook, right? So that kind of thing. But if American Express is watching, right? It's Which, Michael at Brax.com. No. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yes. So, okay. I'll meet you outside. There you go. I'll meet you outside. Uh, we'll give you the address in New York City. So, um, there's one other thing in the term sheet I want to ask about. What about things like stock options and, and that shell game? And again, there's there's so many, everything, everything yeah, like, I mean, it's just valuation. It's no, not. right. So, I mean, options, a lot of times, the actually, pool. the option pool will be negotiated by, the investor is usually advocating for a larger option pool prior to them putting money in because okay. they don't want to take that dilution. Right. Correct. So that's always one of the sticking points right. is you know who whether or not the new investor takes the, the option dilution. Mm-hmm. So that's definitely a that's more of a valuation point. Um, if, if for people that are watching, by the way, if they don't know all of this and it's not just reading online, you, who do you turn to for help? Do you do you talk to other finance people, attorneys that you work with? You know, you're like, help me think this through. I mean, I kind of figured it out on the fly. Yep. I don't. I never really had anyone to. I guess. I mean, attorneys are good sources. Mm-hmm. Uh, Can you I, say who you work with? We worked. I worked with Oric at SoFi. We mm-hmm. worked with um, Wilson Sonsini okay. at at Brex. Those are two very blue chip. Yeah, I, yeah. You don't. You don't need to need to do that necessarily. Right. And by the way, I'm a big fan. Although there's a branding to it, right? You hire. I always like to say I hire attorneys and accountants, not law firms and accounting firms. Right. It's like who's the person I'm working with? Yes. You know? Well, so the the one was named Peter Cohn and one was yeah. named Damian Weiss. Cool. Um, we love Shadow. And then I think for, yeah, I think to learn, um, I, my biggest advice is just reading the docs. Right. Like I read, that was always a competitive advantage. It was taught to me at SoFi of at least at least one time. Mm-hmm. You should read the I, stockholders purchase agreement, SPA, yeah. right? You should read the investor rights agreement. Right. Like these are things that if you've never read them once and you're a CFO, like that's a problem. A, a couple startups I've done where I've been CEO, I've read those docs and it's funny because you're like a couple times, like I'm just going to huff through it. It's going to be a weekend and I'm going to go through all of them. You go through all of them and you, and you hand it back like with a couple questions, spelling mistakes, typos are like, oh my God, nobody reads this stuff. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it. I got to read it because I really it's need to understand It's important though. Yeah, I read it. Yeah. That At least the book. first time you got to read so, it. So let's, so let's kind of, I want to start getting towards wrap up a little bit. So you think of SoFi, you three, think of Brex. What are the top two or three lessons you've learned in all of this? You know, maybe one or two things mm. that stick out. Biggest tricks or biggest traps? In, in yeah, I mean, I think until you really know what you're doing, yeah. you need a mentor. Okay. So you may know what you're doing 
right away. Mm -hmm. um, you may not, but you do kind of need someone looking out for you in the world of startups, I think, because it's not like in traditional businesses where there's natural hierarchy and progression mm -hmm. and people are invested and that's just the way it is. So can you turn to, so you guys went through YC, can you turn to your accelerator like a YC or Dream Adventures or Techstars? Can you turn to your attorney? Who do you, who's that mentor? Who I mean, it can be someone internally, Yep. Um, if, depending on how junior you are. Mm -hmm. I think if you're the one in charge, then it's probably not gonna be internally. Right. Right. So you've gotta yeah. find right. either another founder or another more experienced CFO mm -hmm. or yeah, I think right. absolutely can go to somebody as an accelerator they mm -hmm. they do serve that purpose right. and, and okay. we did in many ways um you know during our especially for me running you know so i had done finance before i, I thought i knew what i was doing mm -hmm. but in, in a marketing role i was turning a lot to our accelerators right. uh, to right. get information cool cool okay so those are a couple things that you've learned on um, one other thing i wanted to ask you so for the startups and founders that are watching what are the processes that they should have in place and and for an efficient fundraising process to make sure it goes smoothly. Because we've seen startups, they almost snap defeat from the jaws of victory when they're going through financing. Right? Yeah. Got a term sheet and the whole thing falls apart. Yeah, I think you need to have your financials in place mm -hmm. ahead of time. So you should have some form of monthly financial process and close so mm -hmm. you have something. No one's gonna invest in nothing. Right. So they need, people are gonna to wanna to see income statement, balance sheet, right. and that you have some financial discipline. But, but so to ask, are you guys modeling out three to five years? So and, it, and is anybody gr really grinding through? It's not so much about like, the actual numbers is mm -hmm. just having something to look at and, and know what process. you're buying, right. right? To know that the equity has been maintained and what ownership is actually real, how many shares there are, all that stuff needs to be kind of, it shouldn't scare people. Mm -hmm. I think modeling out three to five years is in the early stage companies is excessive, but what I think is relevant to do, and it's something I talk a lot about, mm -hmm. is to look at the public companies that were companies in the market that exist that have some elements of what you have Got it. and make sure it makes sense. Mm -hmm. So if you're acquiring customers much more expensively than the public company out there, right. that's a problem. If your unit economics are way better, that's interesting, right? right. So you need to benchmark yourself to what's out there in the market. Got it, got it. Market share wise, you know, if, you, if you're saying you're gonna get to a certain percent market share and Facebook is at half that, right. 17 years in, right. like you gotta be worried. It, right? It's interesting you mentioned that by the way, when people see large scale app acquisitions and they're in the billions, funny thing I always do is how many users or how many customers they have divided by the acquisition price. It's like, oh look, they paid $50 a user. Right. Just because just you were saying like, what's your acquisition price versus the public market? And right. People don't, it's like simple math at a simple ratio. Okay, so almost wrapped up. You know, so for the last six years, you've been involved in these two big unicorns and raising. If you could rewind the clock and talk to yourself six years ago, what do you wish somebody had like tapped you on the shoulder and said, Michael, here are two or three things you should know, my friend. Yeah, I think one of, at least what I've found is that there's oftentimes not a right answer mm -hmm. or not a, not a clear right answer at the time. Mm -hmm. And I think making a decision quickly uh, is super important. And right. just being able to, like, in my opinion, being successful in the operating business, not as an investor, is a series of making lots of decisions. Right. And you just have to get comfortable and move right. on. Because right. people who hem and haw, that's the problem. Right, okay. Cool, let's take live questions. Sure. If you can stay with us an extra 10 minutes. Cool. All right, so first question we have. All right, so what do you look for in a lead investor and how do you choose? We talked about term sheets, but are there any characteristics that you're looking for in your lead? So there's obviously one of the big things is 
you know, your relationship with that person and do you like them? And But I think also is what are, what are you feeling like you're lacking the most? Mm-hmm. Is it recruiting ability? Is it brand, right? Maybe you've never done anything before, so mm-hmm. it's super important to get a really incredible investor. Maybe you're actually a famous second-time, third-time entrepreneur mm-hmm. and you've already built this, but you want to expand into a specific area where you don't have domain knowledge. Right. So I think you should look inward and figure out what you don't have and what you're lacking and try to get that from an investor. And I guess that's... and and. When you can be choosy, like when you can be choosy. Yeah. Well, if you're otherwise, you just look for someone who has money. Right. Somebody who cut you a check. Right. Right. Hopefully, at reasonable yes. terms. Okay. Cool. Let's go to our next question. Okay. So VCs say we bet on the jockey. So are these raises that are so high because of the jockey? I mean, these are huge numbers. I mean, are these just outsized jockeys, or is there more to it? Yeah. Right. I mean, I think that in the beginning, a lot of it is about the team because mm-hmm. people pivot and. Right. A lot. Just yeah. because people think they're doing, I mean, we pivoted, people think they're doing some stuff they're not. So can you, if I- Can you talk about that pivot a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I think when we started, we were gonna be going after larger companies, selling a lot of detailed expense management software, mm-hmm. things that, and using the credit card as sort of a way Got in. It. Interesting. And then I think we realized that there was this big market of underserved market that mm-hmm. had this hair on fire problem. Oh, cool. And it was much easier to grow faster. You know, the closer to consumer you get, the, right. easy, the faster Absolutely. it is, Absolutely. the closer. So it depends on just what kind of business do you want to run. That's cool. So you changed your, your target customer, you changed your value proposition. That's, That's cool. right. Very cool. Okay, let, let's keep going. Next question. So do you think all startups should be raising this level of funding? Um, I think that I generally, I think raising funds is good. Mm-hmm. Um, I do. I, you don't want to raise more than you need, So you, but you do want to buffer. I would say where it doesn't make sense is as you kind of mentioned, mm-hmm. if you're just if your sole focus is to fundraise to get a you know ink premium and valuation and just like you get some kind of thrill out of fundraising, mm-hmm. then maybe you should be VC, right? Because right? like you're point. supposed to be an operator, right? So, yeah. Right. Okay. Cool. Um, next question. Uh, so you just said you know fundraising it's a good thing. Cool, interesting question. Could either of these companies you've been involved with been bootstrapped? And why not? It's a- um, no. I think in fintech, bootstrapping is hard if you're at all capital well, intensive. Why? One, just because as a fintech company, having more capital means other people will, and customers want to work with you more. Mm-hmm. There's like this stability and sturdiness to so it. So it's a signal. And- it's a okay. signal. Mm-hmm. And then I think also they're just, um, I mean, it could have been bootstrapped by wealthy people, but not <laughs> okay. by us. Right. Okay. Um, so yeah, no. Okay. All right. Cool. And And we're... Big believers. I mean, we have a lot of companies that come into Dream It. They bootstrap all the way to their Series A. I mean, God bless their heart. And yeah. it also has to do with how you know st- the starting a startup is very hard. Right. It, it sucks. It's painful. Yeah, it's, it doesn't work yeah. often. Yeah. You know, people are always questioning you. What are sure. you doing? You know, you feel dumb saying where you work because right. it's like, oh, I'm working at nothing. Right. And uh, that's hard. And so the question is, bootstrapping is even harder. Right. So it just depends on how much pain do you want to endure. Got it. Okay. Cool. Uh, next question. Do you show, oh, so we talked about this a little bit. Do you show three to five years of financials and how scrutinized are those models? So, you know, VCs are like, I want to yeah, see your financials. I mean, are they digging in and saying, wait, Michael, I don't understand and sell XX52. How did you get that number? I mean, kind of. Oh, really? I, would, okay. I would say that you, I, in my experience, maybe because I'm very financial as a person, mm-hmm. uh, I have typically had always a three to five year model, even if it's high level and has assumptions. Mm-hmm. 
And I think people want to understand broadly the assumptions, but no, not, not, right. not so much sell by sell. Got it. But it's that assumptions because like what I've seen too is like people just want to understand the thought process. Yep. Just show us how it comes together. So, okay, cool. Um, next question from Ramesh Kumar who asked it on LinkedIn. Ramesh, thanks for asking a question. Why would a startup use your credit card and cash management account with you rather than our current bank? Second question is around, do you do revenue-based financing? Sure, I'll answer the second one first because it's easy. Okay. Yes, our e-commerce product is that way. All right, um, revenue-based financing. Revenue-based financing. Can you just explain? It just means rather than it based on, you're underwriting based on somebody's sales rather than underwriting based on their bank account. Got it. yep, okay. Um, and then a startup would use Brex because one, we're going to have rewards, payment terms, meaning you know when you have to make your payment, mm-hmm. and a user experience as well as um, receipt and in basically expense management technology all in one mm-hmm. that's very modern mm-hmm. um, and very tailored to a startup. Right. And so that's why they would use us. Okay, and the other thing, and by the way, and Scott, who's here with us today, who helped set all this up, Scott from Brex, you know, one of the cool interesting bless things. Bless his heart. Bless his heart. But a side note, by the way, if you don't know, if you're a part of a major accelerator like Dream Adventures, YC, Techstars, Mass Challenge, all of that, I believe it's there's no fees for life. That's right. right. It's one of the perks that's for, right. for having the credit card. But my under understanding, I'm just going to go back to my personal experience being a serial founder and serial entrepreneur is like, you know, you go to TD Bank and you get a $5,000 line of credit on your credit Yeah, higher card. limits is a main, you know, for people that aren't limit sensitive, yeah. those are the other reasons. But yeah, at a core level, it's not personally guaranteed and has higher limits. And, and can you give, so if I raise a million dollars, like what's the... What's Usually my around two hundred thousand to twenty oh, percent, okay. so right. big deal. Yeah, because otherwise, like you're going to be with... calling the bank every second, every right. you know, every Amazon Web Services bill you want to you want to make. Right. Yeah. Okay. Cool. All right. So that Ramesh, thank you for your question. Next one is from Karina, who asked it on Facebook. Karina asks, "How can Brex be for pre-funded groups? Between three of us, we need to print business cards and buy merch, or." cover coffee business meetings and we don't have $50,000 in the bank from a VC yet, they might not be your target customer. Yeah, I think it's hard because there's, you, when you're doing lending, you're always trying to measure two things, ability to pay yeah. and willingness to pay. Got it. And so while you might have the willingness, yeah. it's about the ability. Got and it. So I think for what uh, people would typically do in that scenario is first try to go to either a venture fund or accelerator mm-hmm. and then they give kind of the first money in. Got it. Got it. Okay. Um, Karina might, sorry, that's the answer. Okay, from LinkedIn, Derek Calburn. Derek, thanks for asking. Venture debt is exactly our stage. Low risk before uh, round A to build inventory and demonstrate market without cash constraint. Can you recommend sources? Yeah, I think that, look, I'm typically hesitant to recommend Silicon yeah. Valley Bank because yeah, we compete say, with them, SVP. although I do think that they offer um, a good venture Wait, debt do product. You, do, you, do you think of yourselves as venture debt? You say we compete with them? We don't compete with them in venture debt, but we Got compete it. with them in other products. Oh, and sure, so, sure. But I'm you know, an honest guy, and yeah, yeah. I think that they offer a good venture debt product. Okay. Anybody, um, maybe two or three others? To yeah, I think from? there's some. So Fifth Street Finance is a, B, a business development company that, that offers this a lot. And they're based where? They are based, I believe, in New York. Okay, I thought um, so too. And then there's a couple. Um, Hercules is another version of Fifth Street Finance that I think is based in California, Hercules mm-hmm. Capital. Um, and then another uh, good option would be there is a company called, um, I'll think of the name. Okay, but yeah. That's fine. SVP is what comes to mind on that one. Okay, couple more questions. Are you okay for time? Yeah, no, All for right. sure. So, all right. Um, DJ Parker asked on LinkedIn, how did Brex get started? How'd you get your first money credit facility to lend? 
Yeah, so we raised a relatively large Series A, right. which allowed us, it was about... Wait, wait, but the started. Where did it actually come from? Like It started in Y Combinator yep. with our founders who had the idea. Right, and they were serial entrepreneurs they from Brazil and second friends, time right? entrepreneurs second and time friends. Yep. And so they, they basically raised a Y Combinator round, and then before we even launched, we had raised additional funds mm -hmm. because we knew that as a lending product, we would run out of money if we weren't able to fund it. Right. Then we did a small sort of venture debt warehouse facility actually with SVB. Got it, got it. Okay, cool. Thanks, DJ, for your question. Next, uh, Rick Morgan on LinkedIn asked, Brex now has cards, a cash account. I'm sure it's looking into more products in the future. Is Brex slowly becoming a challenger bank for startups? Um, I think that we don't, you know, we're not becoming a bank because that's a very specific regulated term. Right, not getting a charter. No, yeah. um, but I think that we can. You, we continue to offer financial services products for um, you know, tech companies as well as other companies. Got it, got it. And you're U.S. only net right now, correct? We're U.S. only, that's right. Okay. Well, you have an office in Vancouver, right? We do, but we don't offer products to Canadians unless they have a U.S. Um, entity. Got it, got it. Okay, cool. Um, thanks for your question, Rick. Next, Lionheart um, on LinkedIn asks... Richard the... Richard, well, say again? Richard the Lionheart. Richard the Lionheart, yes, yeah. very good, sorry. Um, in starting your startups, did you see customers first or fundraised first? And what was your go-to-market strategy? Yeah, I think we saw customers first. Yep. Um, so we Thank understood God. the need yeah. um, and, the and made sure that there was a pain point before. Um, and our go-to-market... And is that where your pivot came from for Brex? Because you said that's not where you started. Yeah, I think their pivot sort of came from there, yeah. Mm -hmm. And that was actually the second pivot. The first pivot was we oh, wow. they started in virtual reality company, right. um, which is quite different. So it was multiple pivots, but I wasn't there for the first pivot. Okay. Um, and then we our go-to-market strategy was very much... F um, it was a lot driven by my experience at SoFi, mm -hmm. which was more consumer, I would say. So we, we were very focused on launch and doing a big splash. Mm -hmm. We combined it with outdoor advertising, huge press. Um, we waited... Uh, and we waited a while to announce our company. Mm -hmm. And so we announced a ton of things that got a lot of buzz okay. right at once. So it was more of a consumer-oriented launch. Got it. So you came out of stealth. We came out of stealth, yeah. Okay. And that worked because even though our product is B2B, it kind of has a consumer-like decision process and sign-up flow. Got it. Got it. Okay, cool. Thanks. Next, uh, they keep pouring in. William, only one more after this. William asked on LinkedIn. William Reed, thanks for your question. With the BMP Par uh, Paribas relationship, are you going to pursue a wholesale model for card issuing? Well, people might be asking questions or getting into too much detail. Yeah, no, here. I mean, that's fine. I think that there, that is sort of, a, I think that's a business development driven, mm -hmm. ideally, it's somewhat wholesale though co-branded. So mm -hmm. I would say it's important for us to have our brand out there as well. Yeah, right. But for me, the BMP uh, relationship, which is something I worked on, mm -hmm. probably one of my proudest moments here to get a bank like BMP Paribas, awesome. who is very large, yeah, international, yeah. French, yeah. Um, to partner with a company that is you know less than 18 months at the time since its launch is like not easy to do. That's cool, very, very cool. Okay, cool. Last question, one more from Lionheart, Richard Lionheart. Thank you, Richard. Um, on LinkedIn, what lesson or lessons did you learn from your first startup that helped you do the other one better? What do you take away from so far that you bring yeah, to Yeah, I mean, a lot of them are, I think, just when you are, 
when you can see the future of a successful business, you kind of know what problems you want to solve for. Mm -hmm. So certain ones around financial infrastructure, moving to NetSuite, getting audited early, a lot of those really tactical things mm -hmm. that I knew were very painful, making sure your cap table set up right. Do you, by um, the way, on cap table, do you use a product like We use Carta. Yeah, yeah Carta. we use okay, Carta, yeah. which I actually highly recommend. Yeah, yeah, I was going to um, say, all, for, all the Dream It startups use Carta. Yeah. It makes our life so much and easier. And so just getting all, I mean, I spent, I had interns. Wait, NetSuite, Carta, DocuSign. Yeah, I had, <laughs> <laughs> I had teams of interns in the summer at SoFi cleaning up the cap table. I mean, it was a huge, oh I had, it was like, this, I called it the salt mines. Right. We had people going in. I mean, it was crazy. <laughs> so I think that it's a lot of those things I learned. Right. And then I think more broadly, I think you learn intuition around when to promote people internally and mm -hmm. when to hire externally. That's one of the hardest things you deal with in an early stage company. And the, I think the only way you can really learn that is experience. Got it. It's been a full hour. Really appreciate your time. Thank Michael, you. Michael, it was Thanks awesome. For Again, me. if you haven't uh, checked out the Brex credit card and their cash account, check it out. It's great work, customer, all the major accelerators. It's a great benefit. Free for life. Um, if you're interested in DreamIt, check out dreamit.com slash apply if you have ideas for guests. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks. Appreciate yeah, it. Take care. Thanks.